the Radio Misfits Podcast Network. Welcome to Wine Women Radio, where we discuss what we're drinking and what's happening in the wine industry. Pour yourself a glass and enjoy the show. Afternoon, everybody. It's Wine Women Radio. I'm Marcia Maycumber here today with Lisa Adams Walter. Good morning. Hello. Weather afternoon, Lisa. Hey, how are you? Good afternoon. I'm fine. How are you, Marcia? Doing pretty good. We've also got Misty Rodebush Kane here today. Hey, Misty. Hi, Marcia. Hi, Lisa. How's it going? Good, good. Nice to see you, ladies, and nice to be online. It is. It is. And then back reconnecting with another White Women Radio Hour show. Today, we have a really exciting guest with us that I've been anticipating for a really long time having with us. It's Bonnie Meyer. Bonnie Meyer is co-founder of Silver Oak Cellars. Isn't that exciting? Yes. I think it's great. Welcome, Bonnie. <laughs> Thank you very much. Good to be here. It's great to have you with us. For those who don't know, now Bonnie is currently the principal of Meyer Family Enterprises, which is an investment company dedicated to the regeneration of the planet and society, because don't we really need that right now? Uh, but of course, most people probably know Bonnie from Silver Oak Cellars, which was founded in 1972. So she's been around Napa Valley for a while, to say the, the very least there. And right now, she has a brand new book out. It is Perfectly Paired, The Love Affair Behind an Iconic Wine. So we wanted to talk with Bonnie about her memoir, her ideas, her stories about Silver Oak, uh, about obviously the love story with her husband, Justin Meyer, uh, who was her co-founder at Silver Oak Cellars, along with the Duncans. We'll get to them in just a little bit. So maybe we should kick it off a little bit, Bonnie, um, with the story, the love affair story, how you met Justin, um, and and how you got introduced to wine? Okay, it, it, that was a it was a very unintentional love affair. When I met when I met Justin, I was a a new freshman at UC Davis. Uh, Justin was finishing his master's degree there with uh, under Dr. Oma, who was a world renowned viticulturist. And I was invited to their home for Justin's birthday. I'd only been at school for about a month. My friend who invited me said, bring your guitar, which I did. And I brought it out to sing happy birthday to Justin, who was brother Justin at that time. He was a Christian Brothers monk. Christian Brothers was probably the second largest winery in the country in the 60s. Mm-hmm. And we, um, I brought out my guitar, sang happy birthday. His eyes lit up. He went back to his bedroom. He had been, was living with the Amos, got his handmade banjo, and we started singing at the table. There's a photograph of that moment in the book. And uh, then we became fast friends after that. We, we sang for hours that night and... Uh, really enjoyed our friendship that really arose from music. Uh, but neither one of us thought that uh, that relationship, which we really 
we really gave ourselves to the relationship and and after a number of months we realized we were in love with each other but we never really seriously considered at least i didn't that it was ever going to be a relationship that would lead to uh, a marriage uh, or a permanent relationship that it was just something beautiful along the way a fascinating story because of course falling in love with a monk is a pretty unusual thing even more unusual was he left uh, uh that life um it was his choice it wasn't something that you spurred him on to do it was it was a, a decision that took him a long time to arrive at all the while he is being mentored under brother timothy uh, who was the winemaker for decades for christian brothers and back in the late 60s and early 70s napa valley still really wasn't on the map per se it was still known for Chablis and Hardy Burgundy okay. and a lot of jug wines. It was still in uh, a multi-decade recovery from prohibition. Uh, and there wasn't a whole lot of attention, attention being given there. There was no such thing as wine tourism. And there wasn't a whole lot yet of even direct-to-consumer sales. It was still mostly delivered through the three-tier system. Is that right, Bonnie? That, that, is, that is correct. And Napa Valley was a place where college students came to drink for free. <laughs> and so... That's when tasting rooms were free. <laughs> tasting rooms were all free, and the college kids all knew that they this is where you could where you could come and sample wine. And yes, a lot of what I would call jug wine was made here, and people literally could bring their gallon jugs to the winery and have it filled and go home buying a gallon or two or three. And so fine wines, vintage wines were not the forte of of uh, Napa Valley at that time. Yeah, very tricky stuff. So that was your that was your introduction. Um, little did you know at that time what all it would lead to down the road. So you went through college at UC Davis, um, dating other men, um, still seeing your friend brother Justin. Uh, learning a lot about wine. After all, UC Davis had a very strong uh, viticulture and, and enology department. But at a certain point, things really started to shift for the two of you. Um, and I, I, you know, I could never put myself in your shoes in trying to think in terms of um, wondering where my life would go under those types of circumstances. But you have a particular passage in the book. This is, this is well past 100 pages into the book, and we're still kind of at the beginning of the relationships here. But you said, um, I don't know how I knew this, but I was absolutely certain that if I failed to have the courage to live my truth, I would pay dearly for the rest of my life. I could never bring myself to be less than absolutely impeccable with the men I dated by saying yes when I secretly longed to be with someone else. 
even if that someone else and I were not free to be together, that would be a lie that would forever weigh on my soul. That to me said a lot about uh, the value of integrity to yourself and to others in that. And it, and it's, and it said a lot to me in volumes about um, how you valued who you spent your time with and how you spent your time um, overall. Can you talk a little bit about um, that kind of period when you were trying to figure out which way things were going to go? <laughs> yes. Hmm. So I did have I did have other young men who asked me to marry them and I and I said no. I did have other men that were really interested in me and I um almost always depending on where our relationship was headed always told them that I was actually in love with someone else. And I, yeah, I just knew that if I compromised in the most primary relationship in my life that that would actually uh, lead down a path I didn't want to go down. I also, in retrospect, I have to, I would say that pe people often will wonder, well, how did you end up with such an extraordinary love affair, extraordinary relationship? And in retrospect, I believe that it had a lot to do with Justin and I both really being in a place of non-attachment. So we were, we were courageously loving each other, just again, sitting in the knowing that we wouldn't be together. And it was that dedication to a pure love that actually I believe fueled uh, and created the foundation for our extraordinary relationship uh, for the next 30 years after that. And I also, by the way, I see people getting married for a lot of reasons that maybe aren't as pure and that I don't know if they, it usually is after the marriage falls apart that they recognize it. You know, I got married because I wanted to have a baby. I got married because I wanted to be with this really good looking guy. I got married because I wanted to move to, to Denver. I, you know, people actually make a lot of choices uh, around marriage and partnership that aren't as, as pure as they could be. And then they usually end up suffering a bit from it. And I would rather be, um, I'd rather, bottom line, I'd rather be alone to be with someone that I didn't absolutely and deeply admire and love. I think that's really important and I, it just came through very strongly in the book. And I brought it up in part because we're living in an era where there's a lot of fake news. There's a lot of fake information. There's, there, there's a lot going on with people not being true to themselves. And uh, I think a fair portion of your book is kind of dedicated to the, to the importance of doing that. So that was one of the reasons I wanted to bring it up because uh, I admired that. I thought that was really important. And it obviously played into 
your long-term success with Justin um, was both of you had a very high sense of integrity and that comes across in the book. Um, and that kind of brings us up to uh, uh, the founding of Silver Oak, which is a fascinating story by itself because Justin had left Christian Brothers working as a consulting winemaker, something that's really kind of common these days, but probably wasn't necessarily as common back then, uh, and, and had left the order, uh, and you were uh, finishing college and all of that, and you, you both had this dream of one day having a winery, but you're both starting out from scratch. Tell us what happened then with how Silver Oak got its kickoff. <laughs> yeah, we thought it was going to be a very long time. That when we, when we were married, the sum total of our fortune is he had a dog and I had a car. So it was a pretty humble place to start from. But I think it was two months or so, maybe three months before we were about to be married in, in September, in I think it was late June, that there was a, a Denver oil man, Ray Duncan, that showed up and wanting to talk to Justin. And he had spoken with him a couple times when he was with Christian Brothers, wanting Christian Brothers to farm some acreage that he had just purchased in Oakville. And Christian Brothers didn't want to do that. But then he found out, he was desperately looking for somebody to farm this 500 acres that he had purchased. It was an old dairy. And so Ray, Ray heard through the grapevine that, that, uh, that Justin had left the brothers. So he, he flew out to California the next day. He arranged, they had dinner together on a little picnic table in front of Justin's very humble little house where he was staying. And Ray says, hey, I'd really love you to farm my vineyard. And Justin said, no, nah, I don't want to do that. I'm enjoying this consulting. In fact, he was helping people not just make wine, but he was helping people to get into the wine business. There were a number of curious people who really wanted to start a winery. And, and he said, I don't want to do that. I'm having a good, good time doing what I'm doing. And what I really want to do is, is make wine. And Ray said, so do you know how to make wine? <laughs> this this um, protege of, of uh, Brother Timothy said, yes, I do. And they chatted about it. And Justin, right away uh, from the beginning, he knew that he just wanted to make Cabernet Sauvignon. He had done some experiments at Davis. He really believed that Cabernet was what Napa Valley did the best and Alexander Valley as well. And like, like the Bordeaux area, they really ought to be focused instead of producing. I mean, they were, they were making wine out of chasteless and, and Riesling and, you know, everything here at that time. Right. And, and he, he just felt that that would, that would be it, but also a reaction to the 40 different wines that he was making at, at the, at so at um, at Christian Brothers, he just wanted to focus on one. So that's how we that's how how it all started. It was like it was one of those synchronistic 
moments and conversations that uh, really changed everything. And it made it so that that Silver Oak could really um, start out a little less humbly than it would have. But even then, we used to call ourselves the limiting partner because however many barrels that we could afford, <laughs> Ray would match that. And, and so it still grew slowly, but, but uh, beautifully. It's a, it's a great story. And to put some context around it, this was before Napa Valley was known at all for, for its Cabernets. That was really uh, you and Justin putting that on the map. Um, it's before Napa Valley was even really known for making uh, single varietal wines, let alone um, single vineyard designates. So a whole lot of change came with this new partnership uh, and all of it taking off. So when Silver Oak was kind of formed over the picnic table and the handshake, that meant that you and Justin had the farmhouse that went with the 500-acre dairy land to live in and start your family at. Um, Justin had a whole lot of acreage now that he could plant and um, farm however he wished, and there was a whole bunch of very new farming techniques that he introduced. And there was also the 100 acres Los Amigos Vineyard in Alexander Valley that also contributed to blends and so forth. Uh, so this really kicked things off for you guys, except for one thing that you didn't have. You had no place to make the wine that was all about to be harvested. So there was an, another move that you had to make. I can't believe this. You founded Silver Oak right away in 1972. But then there was another big acquisition that was made pretty quickly. You want to talk a, a bit about Franciscan? <laughs> sure. Uh, actually, what we did do is be, because of uh, Justin's relationship with Christian Brothers, which still was on good terms, Christian Brothers made the first Silver Oak wine for the first uh, yeah, three, three years or so. And then actually what really happened uh, is, is um, Justin planted all this vineyard, it was three years later, 1975, and all of a sudden the price of grapes plummeted and Ray didn't have a place to sell all these grapes. And so it was Ray's idea to buy Franciscan. He had gone bankrupt twice before that, twice in a couple of years, it had gone bankrupt. And he bought it from the bankruptcy judge and uh, we moved in. So, you know, there were, there were momentous moments. You know, we, we crushed our first grapes of Silver Oak the same week we were married and we moved into Franciscan the same, same day that um, our first son, Chad was born. Wow. <laughs> so, um, <laughs> we, we moved along quickly. So, so Franciscan uh, became the place where Silver Oak was made for five years. And then finally, 
about 10 years after Silver Oak was established, Silver Oak had its own facility. So it was, wasn't until 10 years later. And, and that was intentional in a lot of ways. The strategy of, of waiting uh, to build a winery because winery equipment it's idle most of the year. It's it's a it's a big expense, and and so the idea of of just taking our time before we finally uh, made uh, made wine there in our own facility uh, that ten year period really helped us grow without a huge overhead. And uh, the first wines were actually made in the old dairy buildings in the milk storage barn and the milking barn. So uh, we just made do with what we had. You know, you you, you got to work with what's available, and yeah. that's really true. And it, that is still true today in the wine industry. And uh, at least, you know, people are pretty friendly, understanding, willing to help out when somebody is short bin space or short tank space. Um, people are willing to share because they know it's going to come back around to them someday, one way or another. So it's a really uh, great thing about the wine industry is the camaraderie. Because um, everybody, everybody knows the, the, the trials and tribulations yeah. of working with Mother Nature, um, which is pretty terrific. And you kind of um, cut your chops, so to speak, with all the the sales you had to do um, because Justin was kind of supervising what was going on at Franciscan while you simultaneously ran Silver Oak and were doing all the sales and raising children. Mm -hmm. <laughs> big, big challenges. And you, you have several um, engaging stories in the book. Uh, about the children, uh, you know, having having the run without going nuts of the dairy barns uh, or, or, you know, the tasting room when there weren't guests throughout the tasting room and all that. Can you talk a little bit about just the, the, the juggling act of <laughs> raising children and, you know, talking with distributors on the phone and all of that? <laughs> Yeah. Yes. Um, it was, um, it, it's a lot, a lot was going on. Uh, at first I, I was, I started out by just doing sale, sales and bookkeeping and basically running the, the basic business. And then later as Silvero grew, my, my uh, job description got smaller, which which I, you know, you, there are more people involved, more people doing other things. So it really centered around marketing after that. And I loved, mm, I loved being in a position where it was project-based so that I could juggle things better than if it, I needed to really be there eight to five. I really wanted to be around when my kids were, um, out of school or uh, and be actively engaged w with them and so because again the winery grew with us it, it wasn't it was never a full-time job for me although there were plenty of times when uh, every, we all were at the winery 
um, kids doing homework and me doing homework and, and you know, uh, there were times, but, but because I stuck with sales and uh, marketing, I could do it in my own time and that made it more, more doable while Justin was busy with production. What was it like back then um, working as a woman in the sales end of things? Because Misty and Lisa and I have all heard stories for years, um, even more recently, about how difficult it is for women in wine sales, um, that it's such a good old boy's, uh, you know, kind of uh, isolated group. And it's and, and wine sales for women still strikes me as being kind of difficult. So I can't even imagine what it was like for you. Can you talk about that a bit? Sure. When I first was deciding to, to do that and uh, committed to going into wine shops and the backs of restaurants, I heard all kinds of stories that oh, those places, those back rooms, they're pretty seedy places and they've got pinup girls all over the walls and you're not going to be safe. This is a, this is, there's no place for a woman. But we had wine to sell. And so I just, uh, I, I had uh, someone who kind of showed me the ropes down in LA and, and, uh, and so I just decided that I was going to, this is what I was going to do. Now, I think Janet Trefathan, this is about 1975 and six that we started doing this. Janet Trefathan and I were the first women to ever sell wine. And the advantage that we had was that we actually represented the winery. So when I would go into a wine shop and people um, understood that I was from a winery, then I was an, a winery owner then they would ask me, well, what's going on up in Napa Valley? You know, have you tasted this wine? Do you know these people? And so being a, a real part of, of the business in that way, I think was a real advantage. And no one ever treated me with disrespect. Uh, so I actually had a pretty good experience. Uh, now, if you're working for a wine company and a wine distributor, that you don't have that advantage. But I understand now, Marcia, that there are more women wine salespeople than there are men. And, and I think those distributors, yeah, those distributorships have realized that when it comes to wine, not hard liquor necessarily, but when it comes to wine, women really are more articulate and can really talk about the wines better than their male counterparts. So it's really shifted. Yeah. And I want to just add to this, um, Misty and Lisa probably know the answer to this better, but my recollection is that uh, when it comes to who purchases the most wine, it's women. It's like mm -hmm. at least 70% of all wine purchased is purchased by women. Does that sound about right to you guys? 
It, it really right. varies by brand. So like um, I've worked for some brands before that were more male dominated in the purchase um, demographics and then others where it's more female dominated. So it is an interesting stat to look at and age generational, I guess, ranges as well by brand. So it's interesting. Um, but I, I really appreciate this dialogue, Bonnie. I mean, this is a, a, an amazing story that you've told in your book. Um, the courageousness to really follow through um, and really be true to your values. I mean, it carried through not only from like the, the initial love affair, but then also to be true to like go to really in, in a time when, you know, the single varietals weren't um, as prevalent as they are now and to establish Silver Oak with um, Cabernet Sauvignon. I mean, I'm just amazed and floored and, and then um, I was also really impressed um, in finding out more about how you personally, with um, the establishment of your Myers investments, were really ahead of the game in terms of impact marketing. And really, I mean, Bill and Melinda Gates started it probably a decade before you really got into it, but it was still so early on and you were really on the forefront of that. So it's not only, you haven't been on the forefront of being true to your values, but you've been on the forefront of these huge initiatives that span so much further than wine. I think it's amazing and impressive. And I'm just, you know, curious to see what your next big, <laughs> your next big venture is going to be. <laughs> Let me say something about, about that. I, I do believe that, and I, and I did recognize early on as Marcia referenced that, being true to my values and my, for my personal life was really going to serve me well. But I also uh, would say that being true to our values in our business seriously contributed to the phenomenal success that Silver Oak enjoyed. When we, uh, we treated everyone with, with, you know, kindness and respect and hospitality, all of our employees, all of our suppliers, all of our customers. And that created a phenomenal uh, loyalty that doesn't happen any other way. But the reason we did it, it's not because we did things because we should, or we did it to be nice people. It was part of who we were, but also we had I remember a conversation that Justin and I had early on and I said, you know, Justin, we're spending, I don't know, the better part of every day at the winery. I think we ought to make it as fun as possible. And he goes, yeah, I think you're right. And so fun was a huge value for us. And, and it's contagious, you know, it's contagious among the employees and contagious with the customers not taking yourself too seriously, having a kind of a lightness of being really makes life good. And there again, it just um, contributed to the success. And I see too many, I want to bring it up because I see too many people unhappy at their job, even when they are the boss. You know, they think, oh, this needs to be serious or I need to you know, make, make the numbers or what, whatever the conversation is. And uh, I just would like, really wanted to offer through, through the stories in the book and, 
and here in this conversation that that when I live by the things that really move within me, then it just opens up avenues and makes life so much better. And, I wanted and a to recipe for success. Yeah. I wanted to add a couple of things. I I I love the the way your children are woven throughout the book. I mean, family is also is obviously one of your big values. The other thing that really, always really stands out to me is Silver Oak is considered to be a very serious wine. But every year, the pickup party is such an, a massive event. How did that evolve and begin? I think it really started a trend for wineries all over. <laughs> it, it started because every year, we would run out of wine. We always seemed to make less than people wanted, even though we were making more, a little more each year. And our customers began to figure out, there was a newsletter at the time, no internet, but newsletter, and people began to understand when the next release would be um, available. And one morning we arrived at the winery and there, were, there was a dozen people standing at eight o'clock in the morning, standing in front of the door waiting. And and we were so surprised and we go, well, what are you doing here? And they said, well, we're here for the release. We go, oh, okay. And so Justin took them inside, started, you know, open up a bottle of wine and I ran into the Oakville grocery and bought them some coffee and, and donuts um, because who knows, you know, how long these people had been there. And then the next time our wine was released, something similar happened, but there were even more people. And so we had, we had, were prepared with coffee and donuts, but then I realized that, you know, people stayed for a long time. So I started kind of getting deli meat and things for lunch. And over time, it just grew. But the, so the real answer is we didn't create release day. We um, responded. We responded wow. to what people, you know, it's just people showing up and wanting to take care of them. Yeah. That's and a great story. That is a great story. It's yeah. one of the ones I love in the book um, because it just has such a natural feel of, oh, well, they're, they're here at our home. Got to take care of them and be hospitable. And there you did. And it, and it kept growing from there. And, you know, it's amazing to think now how that has, uh, event has, um, evolve to kind of inform all the wineries throughout the valley, throughout both valleys. Um, that this is kind, this is kind of what wine country life is all about: is being hospitable and um, you know providing what makes for uh, a great day or a great afternoon or or however it's going to be. And and so it was very interesting to hear about its origins, so to speak. Um, there's a lot of origin stories associated with Silver Oak that many of our listeners may not be aware of. Um, you know, we talked earlier about um, Napa Valley was not selling wine by single varietal at that time, let alone single vineyard designate. Um, the, the AVAs, the American Viticultural Areas, um, were not well known and we didn't have that many of them. Um, the Alexander Valley was really considered part of North Coast. 
at that time. And uh, so the, the wines from the Los Omegos uh, vineyard uh, were deemed North Coast, and there was kind of an evolution there. Another part of the evolution was up until uh, Justin came along, uh, most wineries were not um, aging the wine, um, you know, more than two years. You know, we're still kind of in a two-year cycle again. And Justin really felt very strongly about how long the wine needed to age before it should be released. Um, that's really a signature element of silver oak. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yes, he, he determined, you know, in France, people will buy young wines and they'll keep them. But in, in the United States, that didn't happen. People, especially then, people, nobody had a wine cellar and people would uh, buy a wine at the grocery store and drink it that night. And he realized that the potential for Cabernet Sauvignon to be elegant and velvety and beautiful cannot be reached with a two-year-old wine. And, and he determined that we would age that we would keep our wines at Silver Oak for four or five years before they were released. And then, even then, they get better and better. But at least at five years old, they, they have that. You can feel, you can taste, you can smell that, the elegance and how the wine has really come together. He also, another pioneering thing he did, which is still no one has replicated, is I don't believe in the same way that silver oak has is uh, only using American oak instead of French oak. And American oak has a vanillin characteristic or character, which is very different than what I think of as a cedary cigar box um, characteristic that French oak has. And but silver oak, he started that and silver oak has main, maintained uh, that. Uh, it, I, that was something that stood out to me, and um, I didn't. I just didn't fully grasp it because I certainly do not have um, the palate or winemaker's understanding of how the nuances of American oak um, would affect the wine differently, let alone the different toasting levels and <laughs> and so. <laughs> Um, uh, you know, uh, oak programs are, are known in, 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 you know, in many ways as winemakers' uh, spice box, um, where they get to play and they've all got unique programs. And that's something that's really kind of special about silver oak. Um, another thing that's, that people will remember about silver oak as being really special is the fire lookout tower that's on the label. And at a certain point, you took over management supervision of the marketing and the packaging design and all of that. Can, can you talk about that evolution a bit for us? <laughs> it actually is not a fire lookout tower. Uh, it, is a, it, it is a water tower. And yeah. all, over, all over Napa Valley, there were these towers and they, um, they looked a little different from each other, but basically the same. They all had tanks in the top and they had a, a, a windmill right next to them. So the windmill would bring the water up from the well and up into the tower. And then 
the water was gravity fed to a home or, the, or a winery or, or for livestock. And they were all over the Napa Valley earlier in early days. And then bit by bit, they've all uh, rotted out and torn down. There's still a few, you can still see them. Some, there was a book that someone gave me to look at not long ago. I don't remember the author's name. It's called Tank House. And it's photographs of, of these water towers in Napa Valley and in Sonoma uh, County, um, all over this area. You might notice, you know, as you wander around, again, the water towers were similar. The same people kind of designed them and built them. Same as the barns. The barns in Napa Valley are all kind of character, look very similar to each other and different from the barns in Mendocino County where someone else was designing them. And so those, those things are fascinating. But we, uh, I decided to put a water tower on the Silver Oak label. I, I designed it early on and, and uh, because we had started out with a dairy, I, I started thinking that maybe I'd put a, a silo on the, on the label and no matter how I drew it, it was very uninteresting. <laughs> you know, it's just, yeah, it's just a silo. And, but then I just, on, on that property, there was a, one of these water towers. And so I wandered around the valley with my camera and, and took a picture of my favorite ones and had an artist uh, draw a kind of a typical uh, water tower, Napa Valley water tower. And then later we had an architect uh, design it and we, we built it. So <laughs> the one that's there right next to Silver Oak is not original. We, we, uh, we built it. As we a, our us. <laughs> and that, so that icon has gone on tour around the U.S. It's that's traveled right. around the U.S. I've seen, um, I mean, stories are amazing with people having tattoos and wedding rings designed after the, the ring. It's, it's pretty astounding. And it started with just um, the humble roots of agriculture. So that's a mm -hmm. pretty great story. Mm -hmm. It's such a, it's such an iconic symbol um, associated with Silver Oak and with Napa Valley. And that's, you know, you're, you're the one responsible, Bonnie. <laughs> here in the map. Um, and, and in addition to that, what's also fascinating to me is um, you had your architect who worked on your home, then also you brought him on board to figure out how to build the winery, uh, and it eventually won uh, the, the Winery Architecture of the Year Award, once you came out a very iconic, again, look. Um, can you talk a little bit about the journey to find the right building and construction for the winery? Yes, um, probably most people one time or another have been to Vintage 1870 in Yachtville. It's an old built brick uh, winery and distillery. And then today it's called Bee Marketplace or something like that. And the, uh, the architect that, that worked on that building, I really liked how he took an old building and created something with very natural looking materials, created something that was great and felt really very comfortable and but also authentic. 
my home was built in the 1880s. And so it's a very old farmhouse. And so I, I searched out to see who had been involved with vintage 1870 and asked him if he would help. Um, we ended up um, building a great room. And in fact, I'm looking at it right here. There are the decking for the ceiling is old wine, wine tanks. Oh, wow. I'll make oh, it so oh. you can, you can see it. Oh, wow. It's, it's, it's stays, stays from old wine tanks. And, and, um, uh, and I really enjoyed working with him. I also, he was very amenable. I like to design things. And so he and I designed it together. And then when it came time to build a winery, we looked around at some wineries, Justin and I, and there were two basic styles at that time. One, a um, lot of them were kind of barn-like structures. And, but then there was, there was a graystone, which had been the Christian Brothers Champagne Cellars, which is today the um, Culinary Institute, a very classic building. And we decided that because Silver Oak is, you know, designed and made to be elegant and, and the classic in a certain sort of way, we decided that that was something that we wanted to emulate. And so there, therefore we asked, uh, uh, Ray was his name, we asked him to, to design Silver Oak that, that way. And, and again, he was very collaborative and we, and we got to do it together and it was a lot of fun. Well, all of that certainly comes across beautifully. Um, I know my, from my visits to Silver Oak, um, that elegant, uh, the elegant farming environment um, really comes across as well as uh, the grandeur with the big high beams and all that. So uh, you, you nailed it. You nailed <laughs> <out of> there. <laughs> and you feel, I think you feel like you arrive. Like once you go down the driveway, there's a very special feeling that you're going to a really special place, which is really, it's nice. Very, very nice. There's a lot of attention to detail and thought put into every, every step of the way when you're visiting. So um, definitely iconic, you know, from the water tower as a brand and as experiencing it, I think it's really, really commendable. I wanted to ask, um, what are some of the lessons you learned along the way with your husband, whether it's in terms of the wine world or, you know, your, your book is very intimate and it, it tells a lot of, really personal um, stories of grief and love and loss and winning and um, family. So what are, what are some of the lessons you would you'd be willing to share with our listeners? Well, I think the things that I spoke of earlier, uh, sticking with my values, with our values, uh, and really valuing fun, having not taken yourself too seriously, Justin uh, was, you know, very, uh, became very famous in certain circles, but then considered today a wine legend, but he was still very humble, always. And, and all of those things, I would say all of those things served, 
served me well, served us well, served our business well. So I would say that's probably the biggest lesson. Um, yeah, the biggest lesson. And to not, and to, to have, um, to have the courage. Justin used to always say, you can tell the pioneers are the ones with the arrows in them. And, <laughs> and, and, and to Putting not, yourself out and, there, right? <laughs> yeah. And I, uh, I realized that uh, in some, some respects, I, I'm fairly fearless. And that has served me well. I just have decided what seemed like the right thing to do at the time and just went for it. I think, uh, Marsha, you were speaking earlier about investing, the impact investing, which we now call uh, regenerative investing. Yeah, it's a field that started in the early 2000s and um, has really, really grown. And hopefully it will, the business in general will be kinder to people and planet than they have been. So, uh, but, but it just arose out of me wanting to have more fun again. And, and then realizing how it really fed my heart and I enjoyed being around the social entrepreneurs and being around people who just wanted to make money. And so it's uh, really led me to a good life, just sticking with the things that really light me up. Nice. Lovely. Yeah, it sure is. Uh, I want to ask before we have to go, we're getting close. Um, we always like to help out um, the other women and youngsters younger than us uh, who are coming up in the industry or considering it um, or nervous that they don't have the skill sets or something. What advice would you like to pass on to those listeners who may not be sure what the right career path is for them? There's so many different career paths in within the wine industry. There's it's limitless today. It is limitless. You know, wine. Um, my daughter-in-law is a winemaker. She's a darn good one. And uh, you can work in a tasting room if you love to be with people. Don't be there if you don't. <laughs> if you love to, if you, if you love people, that's maybe where you belong in the hospitality. And there are people in marketing. People, there are people in sales who visit accounts. There are people who, I don't know, every aspect of. Uh, you know, who work in the business part, you know, the, the bookkeepers and the accountants and, you know, all, all of it. So, so if you're attracted to the wine business, that's, there's an opportunity for you. The most important thing is to figure out what you love doing, what your particular uh, intrinsic talents are and propensities are, because there's a, there's a place for you. Good, wise words. Um, I wanted to ask a little bit about Meyer Family Cellars. I take it now you don't have to do everything like you used to do in the early days of Silver Oak and Franciscan. 
are are you enjoying not having to do everything with the family <laughs> winery? <laughs> um, actually, I do almost nothing. Uh, <laughs> so drink. So, you must do drink. <laughs> I do. <laughs> And I and I produce some materials every now and then, but or contribute every now and then. But Meyer Family Cellars is primarily a project of my son and daughter-in-law, Karen, Matt and Karen, and uh, they're in it up to their, you know, <laughs> up to their eyeballs um, in every in every aspect. And I'm so happy. I think of the wine business. I do see people getting into the wine business and they're in their 60s, and I wouldn't recommend it. I, th I think the wine business is a place for people um, who, are, who are young, and because it takes, it takes 20 or 30 years for a winery to really be successful. It's a very long-term project, and, uh, and it's more of a business than some of these retired, kind of semi-retired people realize. Uh, and uh, so, yeah. I think um, I think perhaps women should do their homework and read some books, such as Bonnie Myers' book, <laughs> to learn about what it takes to really become successful in the wine business. I think that perfectly paired is. Um, I think the stories just really tell us a lot, and and not not only that, it establishes a sense of history that you know mm. our history here isn't as long as in Europe, but it's very interesting because. Napa Valley certainly has changed a lot in the last 40 plus years. And that's a short period of time in the world of wine, but it's a long period of time in the world of wine here in the Napa Valley. So that's right. We perfectly paired. Where can people get the book? So it's, um, and there was an earlier title, Marcia. It, um, so the, the title is per, uh, Perfectly Paired, The Love Affair Behind Silver Oak Cellars. And they can get it at bonniemeyer.com, B-O-N-N-Y-M-E-Y-E-R.com, or Amazon. There you go. And, so, nice. and there's some bookshops around that, that have it, like the Bookmine in Napa and Copperfields. And, probably yeah. probably uh, by order through Reader's Book in uh, Sonoma mm -hmm. uh, for those on this side. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yep. Uh, I have one last question, and it's a little odd, but it's, it, it's, you know, a large portion of your book. And I was thinking in the era of COVID, that has been very difficult this year. A lot of people have had enormous upheaval in their lives this year. And you went through that more than once, actually, but particularly with Justin's death being so sudden, um, you are very brave and you talk a lot about grief mm -hmm. and that there, there's no right or wrong way to do it. There's, there's no right or wrong length of time that it takes. Um, and I just thought, you know, there's people who are probably grieving the loss of relatives, but also things like the loss of jobs, the loss of being able to have tons of people visiting their winery and just a lot of upheaval. And I thought maybe you would want to address a little bit about what is grief is like today. 
So that is exactly why I spent spend some time speaking about grief in, in Perfectly Paired, because in our society, we are so illiterate when it comes to grief. We are afraid to talk about it. As someone, they have a close relative that dies, and after two weeks, they say, are you over it yet? Which is the most ridiculous thing. And no, of course they're not <laughs> over it. And I, my, my assistant just lost her home in the fire up by Lake Berryessa. And so she is dealing with grief. So we are feeling grief from, from losing relatives, losing a job, losing a home, losing um, maybe if you all of a sudden have a life-threatening illness, you know, that there's grief with that. So grief is a constant part of our lives. And it would serve us better to be more fluent in our conversation and more yeah, my, more understanding and compassionate for those who are going through it. And uh, what else could I say? That it, yeah, it is definitely a journey. Everyone does it their own way and at their own pace. But uh, my my heartfelt advice about it is that when we can be afraid of grief, and when we really dive into it is when the gifts of grief emerge. And at the bottom of any really difficult situation, no matter all of those things I just mentioned and more, at the, at the bottom is the opportunity uh, to emerge into something new that you hadn't imagined before. And so it breaks your heart open in ways that nothing else could. And then there is that, uh, the, that growth, that into a into a new uh, new way of new way of being, new opportunities, new experiences. I I liked in the book um, how you have a section on grief with symptoms and things that help, and then as you just mentioned, the gifts of grief, which I I do think that's important. I don't think that people understand, you know. Even though everyone's experienced grief at some level, they don't really understand, as you mentioned, it's an educational process. So I like the tools that you've prepared yeah. and shared. So. Well, I thought, you know, it's a way of nor normalizing it, right? To just say, here are all the symptoms. Here's, you know, if you under, if you, you're confused about why you feel confused, <laughs> it's grief, <laughs> you <Yeah>. know? <laughs> or, yeah, there's, yeah, so many, things that people feel and they, because we're so illiterate, we don't, we don't uh, understand our, uh, the experience very well. Well, I definitely think your book in addressing that will really help a lot of people who are dealing with grief, but maybe not fully aware of it and, and feeling alone. There's, you describe, there's a certain aloneness to it. Um, and this is a way to help, you know, help them feel connected and it's, and that it's not unusual. So, uh, thank you, Bonnie Meyer, author of Perfectly Paired, The Love Affair Behind Silver Oak Cellars. Uh, so thank you for sharing your story with us. It's really a beautiful memoir. I want to encourage everybody to find it at your local bookstore. 
because you can. And it's a, it's a great story. It's not just about the grief. It's, it's grief. It's a love story. It's about the iconic brand. It's a history of Napa Valley that many people don't know. So very fascinating. Thank you, Bonnie. You're welcome. Thank you, Bonnie. Really nice to meet you. Thanks, Lisa. Good to see you again today. Nice to see you, Marsha. Yeah, and Missy had to duck off a little earlier, so she quietly snuck out of the Zoom room, as it were. But we also want to thank our listeners for tuning in. We really appreciate that you uh, give a little bit of time to Wine Women Radio. And next week, we will have another show here on Wine Women Radio. Thank you, everyone, for being with us this week. Bye-bye. Thanks. Bye-bye.